Beloved, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This morning we come to verses 23 through 25 as we have been uh, considering uh, last week and then this week and then, God willing, next week, the uh, three groanings of Romans chapter 8. And I was sharing with a couple of you before the service that uh, there could be no more relevant text in the Bible that we could come to this week than Romans 8, 23 through 25. So thank God for his providence, and let's hear what God has to say to us from his word. Romans 8, 23 through 25. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. I want to begin in verse 18, uh, though we will focus in on verses 23 through 25 this morning. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our blessed God, on our own, we are incapable of hearing and appropriating your truth. And so we ask, Lord, that by the illumination of your Holy Spirit, that you would bring light that you would enable us to hear and to believe and to respond to your truth, which is found in this text, and all for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we learned last week that the whole creation groans. Creation groans and sighs. Why does it groan? Because under God's curse, as a result of sin, creation has been subjected by God to bondage, corruption, and futility. Bondage, corruption, and futility. Indeed, in its present state, creation does not reach its full potential. It is often convulsive and inhospitable. Creation is full of thistles and thorns and earthquakes and hurricanes and floods and tornadoes. The created order, once perfect, is now full of disorder and death. Beautiful plants and animals live and then they die. We experience this with plants around our house all the time. And they don't live very long, and they die quickly. But this is what happens in a world that is 
cursed. That is cursed as a result of sin. That is in futility and in bondage. Things are not as they should be in nature. Things are not right, says Isaac Watts, far as the curse is found. Dear ones, Paul is teaching us that God's creation is neither what it once was before sin entered the world, nor what it will one day be when Christ returns in glory. And so the apostle personifies, he personifies the whole creation as groaning, but not without the hopeful anticipation of future glory. Remember verse 20, look there with me. In verse 20, Paul teaches us that God subjected the creation to futility in hope. In what? Hope, in hope. That is, in hope of the future glory of the sons of God, in hope of the restoration of all things in Christ. So that's what we learned last week in verses 19 through 22, that in this present age, creation, that is not including human beings, it's the irrational and inanimate creation, everything from uh, the trees to the mountains to the lakes to the rivers, Uh, to the animals, to the fish in the sea, to the birds in the air, that there is a kind of personification of creation, which Paul mentions here, because creation itself is not living up to its potential because of the curse, because God has subjected it to futility, but in hope, in hope of the future restoration of all things. It waits eagerly to be set free from its present bondage. But what we will learn this morning in our text is not only does creation groan, but we ourselves groan. We ourselves groan. That's the first point in my outline this morning. Christians groan inwardly. Christians groan Inwardly. Look with me again at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. In other words, it's not only creation that groans, Christians groan too. Dear Christian, Have you found yourself groaning recently? Have you found yourself groaning inwardly as a Christian believer? Have you been groaning? Have you been groaning over the state of this world and often of the state of your own heart? Of course, here Paul is not speaking of a kind of outward, sinful, discontented, groaning and complaining among God's people. No. No. He's speaking of an inward groaning that happens in the context of a world bent on sin and rebellion. A world where suffering and persecution are common. And this groaning is hardly something that Paul needs to explain because Christians experience it all the time. 
The inward groaning of the people of God is part of the Christian experience in a fallen world. And we are not to try to sort of expunge the groaning through entertainment, through the power of positive thinking. You know, Norman Vincent Peale tried to convince everyone that you just need to get rid of the negative thoughts and everything's going to be fine. He also taught, by the way, that you should never preach against sin or mention sin or discuss sin in the church because people are already down and hurting, and so you don't want to talk about sin. Even though the prophets and the apostles and the Lord Jesus Christ himself always preached about it because he knows that we need to understand it in order to be saved from it by looking to him. But we recognize that there is a kind of groaning that goes on in our hearts. It's real. And it's the Christian's experience in a fallen world. Christians from all over the world inwardly groaned this past week. As news came out of Nashville. News that an evil and heavily armed woman broke into a Christian elementary school. And brutally murdered Three adults, the headmaster of the school, a part-time teacher, and a janitor, all beloved by the community, as well as three nine-year-old children, all going about their day. One of those children, the daughter of the senior minister of Covenant Presbyterian Church. News of this senseless act fostered a collective inward groan from the people of God all over the world. This kind of evil directed against Christians leaves many of us speechless. I saw it again and again on Facebook. No words. No words. This kind of an act compels others to say with the psalmists or the martyrs of Revelation 6, How long, O Lord? How many of you said that this week? How many of you groaning inwardly over the events of this past week thought, Jesus, come back? How long before you return, O Lord, and judge the nations and take us home? You've been feeling this way? Have you been inwardly groaning over the state of the world, over the moral degeneracy of our culture? Well, you're not alone. It's been the experience of Christians, not only in our own day, but over the centuries. A fourth, a fourth century Christian leader named Ambrosiaster wrote this, quote, For Christians, this world is like the ocean. For just as the sea is whipped up by adverse winds and produces storms for sailors, so also this world, moved by the scheming of wicked men, disturbs the minds of believers. We groan. Now, did you notice that when Paul begins to speak about this groaning, he speaks in solidarity with his fellow Christians in Rome. 
in verses 23 through 25, he uses the pronoun we no less than six times. The first time he does so is in verse 23. Do you see that? He says, we ourselves groan inwardly. He is teaching them, he's teaching these Roman Christians in the first century and us that the inward groaning of believers in this present evil age is normal. It's normal because the world is not our home. That's why it's normal. We long for home. It's evidence of our Christian faith that we long for home. Incidentally, if you never long for home, you never long for heaven, you should perhaps question whether or not you even know Christ. What kind of a Christian doesn't want to be with their God in heaven? With the angels and all of God's departed saints. Inward groaning for the Christian is an ordinary part of the Christian life. Why? Because we are citizens of a better country. We long for something better. We long to be with Christ. We long for our eternal home with Him. Mary Slessor was a famous 19th century Scottish Presbyterian missionary to what is now known as Nigeria. She suffered greatly for her service to Christ in Africa, and at times she longed to be home in her native Scotland. Once she wrote before a trip home these following words, quote, Oh, the dear homeland, shall I really be there and worship in its churches again? How I long for a wee look at a winter landscape, to feel the cold wind and see the frost in the cart ruts, to hear the ring of shoes on the hard frozen ground, to see the glare of the shops and the hurrying and scurrying crowd, to take a back seat in a church and hear without care my own, uh, to hear without care of my own the congregation singing and hear how they preach and pray and rest their souls in the hush of solemnity. Perhaps you've lived overseas for a time or traveled overseas for a long trip and you felt this way about your own country. You couldn't wait to get back. It's actually a little ironic that I'm reading a statement from a Scot in Africa longing for Scotland. Marla and I lived in Scotland for two years and we so often longed for America. You want to be in your homeland. You long for your native land. Dear ones, in a similar way, the Christian groans for heaven. We yearn for our heavenly homeland, the better country that Christ has purchased for us in his blood. We yearn for the new Eden where hatred and deceit and suffering and war and murder of children and anxiety and strife and infidelity and tears and persecution are no more. We groan for paradise. John Murray was right about the Christian's groaning. Quote, he says this, It is not the mere groaning under the burden of imperfection of the present, but groaning for the glory to be revealed. You see, it's both. Not only do we inwardly groan over the brokenness and disorder and rebellion of this fallen world, we also groan for that future glory. And this leads to our second point. The first point is that Christians 
groan inwardly. The second point is that Christians wait eagerly. Christians wait eagerly. Look with me again at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, something we don't want to miss here, something we don't want to pass over is Paul's, are Paul's words about uh, Christians having the first fruits of the Spirit the first fruits. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. This is the way Paul describes believers. What does this mean exactly? What does it have to do with groaning and eagerly waiting? Well, the idea of first fruits, of course, comes from the Old Testament. The first fruits are what Old Testament believers gave to God from the harvest, from the first portion of the harvest. They were commanded to give of the first fruits of their crop. I prayed it earlier before uh, the offering at the end of my pastoral prayer, uh, where once again I forgot to lead us in the Lord's Prayer. Yes, again. Yes, I write the liturgies. But this is what we do when we give of the first fruits of our income. We give the first portion to the Lord. He gets the first cut, as it were. We are firstly committed to Him and to His kingdom. This comes from the Old Testament concept. We see this uh, in Exodus 23:19, spelled out in a command to God's people, Exodus 23:19, "The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God." So, what does that say about Paul's words about us having the first fruits of the spirit? What does he mean by this? What does this have to do with groaning and, and waiting? Well, it means that God has put His Holy Spirit, that God has put His Holy Spirit in believers as a divine pledge and guarantee of future glory in Christ. The first fruits of the Spirit are a divine pledge and guarantee of future glory. It means that what Christians experience now in the Spirit is only what scholars call an eschatological preview. It's a kind of end times preview. We experience now, in part, what we will experience in full later. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, but we have the Spirit in these bodies which have death within them, and we still struggle with indwelling sin. Remember, sin no longer reigns in us, but sin remains in us, and we fight against that indwelling sin, even as justified believers, even as those who have been saved by grace and stand before God justified, we still have indwelling sin that we're fighting against, and we will one day die. So the first fruits are the preview of the full realization of, of glory in heaven that we will have as the sons and daughters of God. One author puts it this way, quote, Christians are those who have the Spirit as a foretaste of glory. The Spirit as a foretaste of glory. Dear ones, this is primarily why we inwardly groan, because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Because He dwells within us, 
And the Holy Spirit cultivates within us through faith a longing to be with God in heaven, a longing to be with our nail-scarred Savior, Jesus Christ, a deep and intense yearning to take up residence in our eternal home. It's what Samuel Rutherford, the great Scottish pastor and theologian, was seeking to convey when he wrote these words, quote, The sands of time are sinking, the dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for, the fair, sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark hath been the midnight, but day spring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. That's what's happening now. The sun is peaking. Did you see the sunrise this morning? Some of you don't even know what the sunrise is. You've never seen it. You're always sleeping in. The sunrise was beautiful this morning, as it is almost every morning. And you know, for Christians, the sun is just peeking right over the horizon. And we long to see it in all of its glory. The summer morn I've sighed for. He goes on and writes this, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he gifteth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. The Philippian church was worried about Paul. They must have sent notes to him or messengers to him to express concern. He was in a Roman prison. And so Paul wrote them a letter called the letter to the Philippians. And he explains to them that he is right where he is supposed to be. Chained up and bringing the gospel to the Roman guard making its way into palaces in Rome. He's right where he needs to be, and he declares with a kind of wonderful boldness, don't worry about me. To live is Christ, and to die is is gain. We Christians inwardly groan and eagerly wait for the full realization or final phase of our adoption as redeemed sons, which includes the redemption or deliverance of our bodies. That's what Paul is saying here. You see, just as there are different phases of legal adoption in our courts, there are also phases of our spiritual adoption in Christ. And the final phase of our spiritual adoption is yet to come when our bodies will be raised to new life and forever delivered from indwelling sin and death and pain. By grace, through faith, we are adopted sons and daughters of God. But we will not enjoy the full blessings and benefits of our spiritual adoption until we are resurrected in glory with Christ. And this is in part why we groan. We are not yet what we shall be. And we groan for that. Just as creation 
personified by Paul, groans for what it will one day be. It was subjected in hope. And we have the first fruits of the Spirit, and thus we hope. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5, explains it helpfully. It's almost like a commentary on our text. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 6. Second Corinthians 5, 1 through 6. Paul writes, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we, what? Groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, our new bodies. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a what? A guarantee. And then that, verse 6, so we are always of good courage. So we are always of good courage. By the way, do you see the health and wealth gospel in this text anywhere? Or anywhere in the Bible? If you just have enough faith, you'll be free of all financial concerns. You will have perfect health. And all will be well. Just name it and claim it. You see how wicked and pernicious that doctrine is? How it is antithetical to everything the Bible teaches? The Bible teaches that we have faith through the burdens and sufferings of this life. Not that we are able to sort of come out of those things in this life. One writer entitled his book, Your Best Life Now. When the reality is, our best life will be later. Amen? It'll be later. We are always of good courage, even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances, because we know our future. We know our Lord will never let us go. We know that the indwelling spirit is a pledge of future glory and full benefits of our spiritual adoption. We live by faith and with the sure and certain hope of eternal life. But let me pause here for a moment and say this and make it as clear as I know how that only those who are united to Christ by grace through faith possess the spirit and can have this hope. Apart from Christ, you are still in your sin. You are still standing before God as a judge. He's your judge, not your father. You must repent of your sin and receive Christ as your Lord and your Savior in order to receive forgiveness. And he says, come, 
Christ is the compassionate Savior. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you forgiveness. I will give you grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy. Come to me. I died on the cross to pay for your sins, to give you new life. The the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I've come to give you life, life abundantly here on earth and forever in glory. Why would you not receive Christ as your Lord and Savior today if you never have done that? Oh, because I want what the world has to offer. That's why, Pastor John. The creator of the universe sent his only son into a wicked and fallen world to obey the law in our stead, to then as a perfect, sinless, spotless sacrifice give his life on Calvary paying for our sins, receiving God's wrath and justice in our place. And then he died. He paid the wages of sin with his own death. And then he rose from the dead on the third day. Do you believe that? Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus, the resurrected one who's coming again? He invites you to come He invites you to come and to turn from your sin and to receive him and his forgiveness and his grace. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what you have done. He says, come. Come, sinner, and be forgiven and receive the gift of everlasting life. This leads us to our final point. We've already seen that Christians groan and that Christians wait eagerly. The third point that emerges from the text is that Christians hope perseveringly. Christians hope perseveringly. Here we come to verses 24 and 25. Please look there with me. Romans 8, 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope is seen as not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. If you were grading a paper, you might say, hey, why don't you use a different word besides hope? It's a little redundant here. Can you think of a different word to say? Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses this word over and over again. Here we learn, dear ones, that our salvation, our spiritual adoption is marked by gospel hope. This is not the kind of hope that seeks to ignore the problems of the world, but one that perseveres in the face of them. C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, Mere Christianity, he writes this, quote, he writes that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism. Or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It's what we are meant to do. Christians hope. Indeed, we were born again to a living hope. No one says it better than the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3, or excuse me, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says this, quote, Blessed 
be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Do you see the difference between what we have in the world and what we have in heaven? What we have in the world is the opposite of this. What we have in the world is perishable. It's defiled and it's fading. But what we have in heaven is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Kept in heaven for us. Beloved, when you were born again by God's Spirit, a living hope was placed within you. A living hope was placed within you. A hope that looks forward. A hope that joyfully anticipates something better than this world. A hope which longs for the restoration of all things in Christ. This is precisely why the Lord ordained the Christian Sabbath to be the first day of the week. Because on this day, our hope is renewed and strengthened in Christ as the word is preached, as we witness baptisms, as we come to the Lord's table, our hope is strengthened. And oh, how we need that now more than ever in the American church in a context where that which used to be in the shadows and on the edges of society, things that people wouldn't even speak of in polite company, have now become the parade, that which must be celebrated and that which must be worshipped and adored. The moral revolution is seeking to create a new religion in our world. And it is demanding that we bow the knee. And we must resist. We must resist as Christians. And as I mentioned earlier, before the service started, the one most powerful way that we resist the forces of evil and those that would demand that we bow the knee to wicked ideologies is to lift our voices in praise to the one true and living God and to confess His truth, to glory in the gospel, to remember the hope that we have in Christ. Amen? The hope that we have in Christ. The Lord's day is meant to be that which strengthens our hope. And fuels our hope. The word hope is mentioned by Paul no less than five times in these, in these verses. And if you'll notice, he begins by saying that we were saved in this hope. We're not saved by hope. We're saved in this hope. Hope is a part of what it means to be a Christian. And this is the big difference between Christians and non-Christians. Christians have a sure, certain, and indwelling hope. Hope, a hope founded upon the truth of the gospel, upon the truth of the resurrection. But non-Christians have no hope. They are hopeless. All that they have, all that they will receive will be in this life. What they can see with their eyes. But for the Christian, 
We keep our spiritual eyes of faith on things above where Christ is, not on the things of the earth. We seek first the invisible kingdom of God, a kingdom that's not of this world, knowing that all things will be added to us. Yesterday was the funeral of Hallie Scruggs, nine-year-old daughter of Pastor Chad Scruggs. I have several friends in the Nashville Presbytery, and I have several friends in that church, one of which was in the building when the shots were fired, one of which was in presbytery meetings at a church down the road when their phones began to blow up with texts and calls as the ruling elders from Covenant were there and the pastor was there and they all went over to the church and school campus to find out about the horrible events. Pastor Scruggs spoke at his daughter's funeral. It was amazing. How does Reverend Chad Scruggs stand up and give words of truth and comfort at his nine-year-old daughter's funeral yesterday? The answer is hope in Christ. How can he declare boldly in his message that Satan will not have victory in this horrific act? Hope in Christ. How do the families of those who were murdered in the shootings persevere in their faith? Living hope in Christ. How? How do the families of those carry on in their Christian lives, in their jobs, in their families, living hope in Christ and the future glory of the resurrection? How do believers who are being persecuted all around the world serve Christ with such courage and patience? It's because of the hope in which they were saved. You see, that hope is a part of that salvation that they were brought into. John Murray writes this, hope is an ingredient inseparable from the salvation possessed. In that sense, it is salvation conditioned by and oriented to hope. Hope. And we wait for it with patience or perseverance. Well, as we close, some of you perhaps are here this morning because you ran in the Cooper River Bridge Run. Uh, as I personally was uh, painfully making my way up the bridge uh, with a strong headwind uh, up the steepest hill in Charleston, I often laugh about the name of our own town here, Mount Pleasant. Where's the mount? I do not know. I don't think when it was named that the Cooper River Bridge Run was there. That can't be the mount. But uh, as I was making my way up the bridge, um, 
in more pain than I care to explain here this morning, I was thinking about the analogy to life that distance running is. That's why the Apostle Paul uses it several times, the analogy or metaphor of running. During a race, one has to persevere physically and fight mentally at times to keep going, to maintain a certain pace, to struggle through feelings of withdrawing from the race. I'm often wondering as I'm running and having these thoughts go through my head, I wonder if others are feeling like I am. They're feeling like, you know, why am I doing this? Why am I not at home drinking coffee with my wife? Why am I here? But then you look up and you see runners all around you. Their pace and endurance encourages you. You see some that are working through the pain or the exhaustion of the run, putting one foot in front of the other, and it motivates you to keep going. Seeing that funeral yesterday motivates me to keep going. To hear Pastor Scruggs defying the devil in front of thousands of people makes me want to keep going. To hear those Christians singing in that church, he will hold me fast, makes me want to keep going. You see, the runners around you They motivate you to keep going. And though you do not see it yet, you've been told that there is an after party at Marion Square. I took their word for it. They told me there was a party at Marion. Now, I've been to it many times in previous years. But I took their word for it. It's going to be there when the race is done. You run with the joyful thought that soon you'll be with friends At the finish line. The pain will be over. There will be food and music and laughter. The runner reminds himself or herself of this as he or she ascends the crest of the bridge out of breath with legs burning. Dear ones, united to our crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, we possess a living hope. It's because of this sure and certain hope of Christ's return and the redemption of our bodies at the resurrection that we keep going, that we put one foot in front of the other as we make our way to the promised land of the new heavens and the, near, and the new earth. Dear pilgrim, keep going. Keep going. Don't stop. You may feel like withdrawing. You may feel crushed under the weight of all the bad news this week. But there is hope in Christ. Do not give up. Continue to protest against Satan's actions in our culture. Continue to confess the name of Christ. Continue to sing his praise. Continue to raise your children in the Lord. Do not give up. Do not stop. Keep going, dear pilgrim on your way to the promised land. Christ is the pilgrim that is blazing the way. He's the pioneer that's blazing the way for you. From suffering to glory, from humiliation to exaltation. We follow in that path and we trust the Lord in the midst of very difficult circumstances. Yes, we are heading 
to Emmanuel's land. But we don't see it now. Right now we groan. If we did see it, there would be no reason for hope. It's Paul's point. We hope for what we do not see. But even more sure than the after party for the bridge run or any other earthly distance race is our future resurrection glory in Christ. Even more sure is the food and the the joy, the feasting, the laughter, and the music of the new creation where we will dwell forever with God and with the angels and with all who are united to Christ. Dear ones, it is this living hope that motivates and inspires and compels and drives us to live by faith in a fallen and degenerate world, a world that may even persecute us, that is persecuting us. It is this living hope by the Spirit that fosters within us a heart of worship and joy and forgiveness towards others and compassion for the lost. It is this hope which fuels the Great Commission and ignites loving evangelism. Well, I want to conclude by quoting two verses of the hymn that we will sing in just a minute. A hymn full of that living hope which we hear about in Scripture. The flower of earthly splendor in time must surely die. Its fragile bloom surrender to you, the Lord Most High. But hidden from all nature, the eternal seed is sown, though small in mortal stature to heaven's garden grown. For Christ, the man from heaven, from death has set us free, and we through him are given the final victory. Then here, O gracious Savior, accept the love we bring, that we who know your favor may serve you as our king, and whether our tomorrows be filled with good or ill, will triumph through our sorrows and rise to bless you still, to marvel at your beauty and glory in your ways and make a joyful duty our sacrifice of praise. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our loving, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you praise for your word. We give you praise for your promises. We give you thanks for the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. We give you thanks that to be saved means that we have hope within us. We thank you that to have the first fruits of the Spirit is to have that hope within us, that hope of heaven, that hope for something better, that hope for our eternal home, that hope of our eternal dwelling place with you in Emmanuel's land. Oh, Lord, may this inspire and motivate and compel us to live godly lives in this present evil age and to be quick to share this gospel hope with others that they too 
would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And we pray this in Jesus' name.